Welcome to the show. I am Kevin E. West, your host, and it is my esteemed pleasure to present the docu-podcast Shadow of a Mercenary. Shadow of a Mercenary chronicles the dramatic life story of Verlin Keys, a simple crop-dusting ex-Marine Kansas farm kid who was screwed over in the late 70s by crooked bankers in the Farm Aid era, eventually kidnapped by Escobar's cartel for 28 days during the war on drugs, and ultimately betrayed and dismissed by the very government he'd served to protect. You see, Verlin had very simple goals for his life. Take his flying passion, build a successful crop dusting business farm, and enjoy fatherhood to his daughter, Christy. Although John Wayne was Verlin's childhood hero, you know, sometimes you're simply forced to do what you have to do to feed your family. After all, it's easy to be betrayed when no one knows you exist. And that's what it means to be the shadow of a mercenary. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Mr. Verlin Siefkees, who I've known since I met in 2002 or 2003 at some random speaking event in Dallas, Texas. And while he's a mild-mannered gent, the reality is, Verlin, it is time to introduce you to the world. I'd like you to tell me about Verlin Siefkees. Oh, you don't want to know about him. Yeah, we probably do. Why don't you start with a description of him and, and some of the stuff that he looks like and did in his life before he got into crop dusting. Oh, well, I'm six foot three, blonde hair, blue eyes, 220 pounds. Uh, I grew up on a small farm in Hudson, Kansas, population of 350. I just grew up raising cattle, driving wheat trucks, driving tractors, riding horses, dogging my horse from my two best friends. The nearest neighbor was a mile away. And he had a horse. My cousin was three miles away, and he had one. And so all we did was work. We bailed hay and just basic straight farm stuff. Other than uh, when I got into 16 and had a car, while well, we got into drag racing on the highways at night. But, uh, you know, just typical stuff growing up in the, in the 60s that way. What would be the best skill you have not related to flying? Or lying? Oh, I don't know. I guess agriculture, probably. Farming. Would you call that a skill? I would. Can you be a little more specific? I just whatever crop you're raising. Pumpkins, wheat, corn. It's pretty good at that. Hunting. Um, Good at hunting. What kind of hunting? Pheasant, quail, ducks, geese. Good old country boy. Yeah. What's your favorite drink? Margarita. Really? A margarita? Yeah. Do you need, like, fruit and an umbrella in it and shit? Sometimes. Oh. (laughs) That's a little stunning for me, I'll be really honest with you. Margarita. I was expecting you to say whiskey or something. Oh, CCN7 or Crown and 7 sometimes, but summertime, warm weather and margarita. But I didn't ask you summertime. What about wintertime? Ah, they're never bad, especially if you have Mexican food. Sound like you might have spent some time in Latin communities in your career. A little bit in the islands. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I'm known to drink a rum runner or Bahama Mama from time to time. Well, deciding between a margarita and a rum runner is one thing, but life decisions are usually a bit more crucial than that. In your case, one decision completely altered your future. The fateful decision to get your instrument-rated pilot's license in Panama City Beach, Florida, 1977, not Dallas, was one such decision. And from that moment... All the way until 1991, Verlin, and you're sitting alone in Wichita, Kansas, 
What's the one thing, if you had to do it over again, you might have changed? Well, I wouldn't have done the smuggling, I can tell you that. If I knew how the system worked, I'd have worked for the government right off. And if I knew what was going to happen in Panama City, I'd have gone to Dallas instead. But once, once you got involved in it, is there anything about the overall process that, that you actually enjoyed? Oh, I didn't enjoy it until I started working for the government. I didn't have any pressure of doing something wrong. Only the pressure of getting shot at. And okay, but when you started doing it for the government, what was the thing about the job description that you enjoyed the most besides the flying part? I don't know what you'd call a job description. I was an informant. I, did, I was a spy. So there wasn't really anything about the proposition of this, even though you agreed to do it basically because Carl called, not necessarily the production credit guys, there wasn't anything about this view at the time that was like, oh, man, this would be a great life. That wasn't your thought. No. It upset my stomach and made me real nervous. And the danger didn't scare me. It was the fact that you get. Right. It was integrity. It was John Wayne. Well, yeah. You couldn't sleep at night the way they were after you, you know, money-wise. But, yeah, it went, against, it went against my grain all the way. But, you know, it's, sometimes you have to do what you have to do or you. What were you going to do? I had no alternative. Did you ever personally spend a lot of time smoking weed or doing cocaine? No, I never smoked weed, did cocaine or any drugs. Most I ever had was a, a bourbon and 7-Up or a margarita. I never did drink very much. You do more drugs now. <laughs> I, well, I, I tell you what, they've taken, they said, well, hell, I had those four back surgeries, you know, and then I had to buy a shoulder replaced last year. And so I've got a 15-inch rod in my back, 22 screws, seven cages, and seven discs. And so I don't abuse the, the hydrocodone. I was taking on an average of three and a half a day. Oh, I, I know you're a pretty straight-laced man. I wasn't implying anything by the question. Hell, the first time we went to Camp Pendleton and we had leave for a weekend, I went to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, because when I think of you, I think of Mickey Mouse. You bet. Yeah, <laughs> well. And if you were to look back now at, quote-unquote, the war on drugs, and again, all the movies and shows that have been on, done on it, I mean, how much of it was a complete failure just simply because of actual governmental employees just being egotistical pricks or stupid? Well, a good portion of it was that way. I mean, there's a lot of people employed by the federal government on drug interdiction. And also, it was a political issue because... Those people, those drug smugglers, it was unappropriated foreign aid for foreign countries. <laughs> well, so what? Yeah. Know, they didn't have to go to Congress. They didn't have to get donated. Uh, the U.S. didn't have to give them money, but the U.S. was giving them money. And I told a couple people that it was unappropriated foreign aid for foreign countries, and it made them mad. You know, it's their drug smugglers shoot them. You know, well. Right. And our prisons are full of how many petty crimes where you got a nickel bag of grass. <laughs> I believe what you're trying to say is, it's all bullshit. Oh, yeah, it's all bullshit. It was a bullshit at the time. I mean, it's a big economic uh, boost. It's an economic boost for foreign countries. They buy cattle where I was kidnapped. They bought 400 head of cattle from Weatherford, Iowa, Brown Swift cattle. He was too proud of those things. And they were on the ranch. They have caterpillar equipment. They have valley irrigation systems. I mean, if you had to go to the federal government, and our government, from their government, and say, hey, we need to have a, a loan from you guys. Do you imagine how long that would take? Uh, hell no. It, they just did it on uh, 
instantly. And as far as our government is concerned, think of all the prison systems, all the agents, all the catering services to the prison system. And it was all statistics, too. A lot of this stuff wouldn't have taken place without the government doing it. I mean, they baited him. They used, uh, you know, the covert operations uh, on these guys that wouldn't have had the power to do it if the federal government hadn't tried to catch somebody and backed them up to do it. So that, you know, it justifies more funds for the DEA, the customs, it justifies airplanes, it justifies more agents. I mean, it's a big business. Do you believe that major drug trafficking will ever really end, Verlin? No, there will always be something. I mean, if it's not, like I was talking to a friend the other day, I said, uh, you know, I, I stopped taking the hydrocodone for the back surgeries, for example. But there's a little pot store in town here that gives you this stuff, Kratom, uh, and it does the same thing. And you don't need a prescription, and it's not. But it comes from the pot store. Well, 20 years ago, you got 10 years in jail for going and buying the stuff. It doesn't have the TCH in it or THC, but it Sonia had arthritis in her hand. She's bawling. She's afraid she's going to have another surgery. I gave her three of those pills, and it didn't hurt anymore. To that end, do you believe that if the government and corporations wanted the war on drugs and, and smuggling to end, that they, all, that they could? Or is it to you, which it is to me, you know, just a little thing like immigration. It's a nice little political talking point football to kick about every four years, but never really do anything about. That's about it. As long as, as long as you can make money doing something illegal, everybody has their price. You get hard up for money. You can do something illegal. You know, drugs may change to something else, but I doubt it. Verlin, I completely agree. I doubt it too. And with that said, it is time to flash forward midway into your story to set the stage regarding illegality. So you're sitting in a plane in a thunderstorm with the DEA surrounding you. So what happened? What did the DEA do? Well, they hauled us off to where the hell. I should remember the town. It just slipped my tongue right off. Jacksonville? No, no, in Georgia. Waycross. Waycross, Georgia? Waycross, Georgia. You mean jail? Yeah. All this off. Again, I'm thinking to myself, this is the fall of 80. You have a 10-year-old daughter. You have a wife. And you're in jail. It wasn't a good night. No. Not to mention that you have a borrowed plane from a friend that you've modified, and he thinks you're just tooling around giving tours or something. <laughs> so, so you go to jail um who'd you meet what happened what was the conversation what went down oh nothing the dea took us over there and stuck us in jail and so you're in jail uh you're with bill cross jr so what was that night like oh i i ain't confined spaces and i always figured i'd kill myself if i got in that position so i didn't have a chance to do it and they got me out before i did it but who got you out? Bill Cross and his uh, attorneys, they got us out. The ones he had on standby. He had a bondsman. Bill Cross had a bondsman lined up. Oh, his dad, Sr., had all this covered. Yeah, if things went to shit, he had it all covered. He'd even taken a shower if we got in trouble. So when they came to arrest him, <laughs> he was all lined up. He'd been in jail before with the old moonshiner stuff. And so he knew the ropes. So basically, Bill Cross, you were the benefit of Bill Cross's senior's history and also the fact that his son was with you so you got out in what 24 hours 
About 24 hours, yeah, or less. You had a, a bond on you, right? Right. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm not always really sure exactly what a bond means, Verlin. I mean, is a bond... How? So you got out of jail. Okay, great. But what, what did that mean in terms of time, in terms of your physical freeness, freedom? What did that mean? It means you just had to show up for trial at a certain date. And a bondsman guarantees you're going to show up or he's going to lose the money. You have to put the money up. To get you out of jail, I forget how much money it was, but say it was a hundred thousand, you had to put somebody had to put up ten of hard cash oh, okay. to get a hundred thousand dollar bond. But let's be clear: you're in the slammer with the boss's son. I mean, you spent the night in jail with Cross Junior. Did you guys have any conversation about what the future was going to look like after you got out of jail, or very little? Because old Bill told him to keep his mouth shut, so he just smugged up and. They were used to that type of life, and you're in jail, the bond's posted, you get out, and I'll do what Daddy says, and, you know, put Verlin off. So the next morning, they came out and got us out. And where did you go? We went to eat dinner at the restaurant called the Smuggler's Inn. Bro, <laughs> with all respect, you got to be shitting me. The Smuggler's Inn? And you're with Kathleen, you cross... Cross Senior, Cross Senior's wife. So what was the discussion at the table about with all you guys sitting there? Well, it's kind of stupid because we were laughing about the situation. And, uh, of course, we couldn't say anything about what we were going to do or what was going to happen after that. And Bill, of course, says, well, we got to work to pay for the, for the attorney's working meeting. we got to do some more struggling. All right. It's slowly coming into focus. Slowly. The bond buys you six months. But how did you get out of jail i mean did your wife at the time kathleen come pick you up she was in panama city we were at bay point the exclusive area and so she drove up in the car and picked me up and we all went out with bill cross senior and junior and his wife and we all went and had dinner and uh, as you should as we should and the dea agents were in there having dinner too so we were all at the same place that's weird that the dea would be watching you have dinner accidentally in the smugglers inn that's a great scene, man. Uh, and so then you guys, what, headed back down to PCB? Yeah, we had the house rented for a while in Bay Point, so we went down to Panama City for a while. Wasn't she pissed off, man? Well, yeah, she was scared, too, because her little nose was stuck into it, too. She knew where I was going, and we'd had beepers in those days. So she had a beeper list of payphones. So if I beeped her, she'd go to a certain payphone. The next time I beeped her, she'd go to another payphone. The next time I beeped her, she'd go to another payphone. And then I'd change, had the sequence change, and she had a list of all the payphones to go to. So she wasn't really an associate, but she was kind of complicit in some of your behavior. That's why she was scared. And prior to you getting arrested, Kathleen was, I mean, you met her at the height of this. You met her through Carl. You met her when, you know, before you even got into doing any of this stuff. Kathleen was cool with all that? She's kind of feisty and gutsy and. You know, she didn't get scared. If things get a little, she'd laugh if things get a little exciting. Well, my man, if you got that kind of lady in your camp, you're going to have to tell us a little more about her. So lay some Kathleen Rickerson on us. Kathleen Rickerson was a five foot four, dark haired uh, little girl from North Georgia, Cornelia, Georgia. She worked at a bank and took her uh, child to Carl's daycare center. Okay, so after you're arrested, Cross Senior helps get you and Junior to Panama City. 
where did you stay and how did Kathleen get from North Georgia to PCB? Just drove back and forth from Cornelia to Panama City Beach. Okay, so in that stretch, when you guys were just chilling out, you and Kathleen went back and forth from the place Cross Senior had for you and Lake Lanier, correct? Correct. Well, we found a place in Lake Lanier. Cross didn't do it. <laughs> yes. Let's not give that clown any credit he's not due. So you're looking for an exit strategy, but what did that exit strategy include over the course of the next, what, five, five and a half months? You had six months before a trial date. What's the plan? How did you do it? Who were you planning to do it with? Well, tried to do it with Cross, and uh, that didn't work. He just kept feeding a little, little money. Well, we got to do another load. We got to do some more. We got to work to make the money to leave the country with. I got it all set up. We just need to run two or three loads and we can get out of the country. But he never did come up with another airplane to fly. He was using another pilot who was setting him up. So he was using two of us. And he was keeping me pushed off to the distance because he didn't want he thought I would be the one talking to the government and giving all the information out on him. So he was, like I said, feeding me money enough to, to live. And Kathleen lived in Cornelia, Georgia, so we went up north. And old Bill Cross's connections were up in North Georgia. So we figured that's where we needed to be for a little while till everything ironed itself out. So what did you do in North Georgia? Nothing. Run around with meeting with Cross a couple of times or trying to meet with him or he'd send Billy up with five grand or ten grand so we'd go ahead and live until the trial. We had a house out in Great Bend and it had furniture in it and everything and we sent a truck out to get that but hell even I forget which bank had that or whether production credit had the house too so we lost the house. We didn't have the house. We didn't have shit. So you it's really jammed. Right, so you're renting a house off of Bill Cross Sr.'s money, just kind of keeping you afloat while you're waiting, awaiting a trial, but you're trying to put a plan together to somehow find a way to never go to jail, right? Well, you got that right, yes. I, was, I had no intention of going to jail. I had no intention of staying in this country. I figured everything was over with. There wasn't anybody going to be my, be my friend anymore. Or, you know, there was no point in going back in the business and uh, no crop dusters were going to hire you. Now they would down in South Georgia because half of those boys were smuggling too. Right. There was that was your business card, crop duster dash smuggler. <laughs> well, they were all doing it. So was Wiley Sanders Trucking doing it. And so was Ted Turner doing it. So, yeah. so you just figured you were, you know, you're a, a cancer at this point. It's you're done. Um, that's fine. You have five and a half months. Are you? trying to sit here and tell me, Verlin, that you were planning to run more jobs with Bill Cross Sr.? That's what you were planning to do? Yeah, I was planning to make enough money to get the hell out of here. Uh, okay. What kind of money were you thinking you were going to do? Make? You know, given his track record, I'm not sure how much we could make, but it was big big numbers because he'd switched to, switched to what he was going to haul. He was going to haul cocaine instead of marijuana or quaaludes you make a lot more money sure cocaine was like 18 to twenty two thousand dollars a kilo pure well a kilo doesn't weigh very much so that's a lot of money you can put a lot more money in an airplane in cocaine and you can in marijuana or quaaludes so so did you actually make any flights for bill cross senior between the time you were arrested released on parole probation awaiting trial did you make any runs Never got around to that. 
I'm going to be honest with you, man. This is already head spinning and it's only episode one. So you have an entire home, an entire business in Ellenwood. I, I have to ask you, man, why in the world wouldn't you just naturally think, knowing what you know about what's going to happen, why wouldn't you just naturally think to go home immediately? Why? Well, I was shook up. I was, you know, I knew how the people back there would look at it. And uh, I didn't want to go back there. I just walked off from the whole thing. Production credit had, you know, they weren't going to honor any more draft, bank drafts. So I couldn't do anything about any bills. People were going to want, want paid. I couldn't do anything about a chemical bill. I couldn't do anything about whatever. And uh, I don't remember how many accounts receivable I had left. Probably since I gave them that big check, probably just two or three. And I, I remember those guys paid me under the table, so I had some money. But you know that community, they look at stuff like that, at drugs like that, well, you're just terrible, you know. And everybody looked at me like, you know, I had a good reputation the whole time. They would have never thought I'd do something like that. And I knew everything was toast. Kathleen went to, went home to get what she could out of the office, and Mom went up there with her. And by that time, they'd already come and, come and uh, got the 210 Cessna, Cessna Finance to repossess that. Because they were afraid it was going to leave the country. I wasn't behind on payments or anything. I didn't have a chance to save anything. It happens so fast. I mean, when you say happens so fast, what are we talking about? 24, 48 hours? How 20, fast? Yeah, 24, 48 hours. By the time I got out of jail and got back to Panama City and could have got an airline ticket, it was too late. I mean, they reacted in 24, 48 hours. And I didn't have the money to do it with in my hand right at that time. I had to, you know, would have taken you know, five ten thousand dollars to run home and stash stuff and fly an airplane to Nebraska and uh, get stuff out of the office and get things out of the hangar. And then where the hell was I going to put it? Because everything was tied up in a knot at that time. I couldn't do anything about it. Right. And the obvious question, of course, becomes you have an ex-wife who's the mother of your daughter and they live in Norton, Kansas. And how, how did they find out? How did it hit them? What did you, did you talk to them? Did you call them? I don't remember. I suppose I called them. They, they could have found it out in the newspaper. Like I said, it didn't take, I don't know how they scanned the news, but it didn't take 24, 48 hours for it to be in the news. You were a news story. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it didn't take, you know, any time at all for that to hit the news. I mean, this state doesn't have any news and they, you know, if a tornado comes through, they try and find out if it blew one tree down or a leaf. So when I did something like that, why well, they scanned it and well, that was uh, you, you were know, a popular story. Yeah, for a couple of days, like everything else, but it was enough to everybody knew about it just instantly. So okay, so you kind of stayed down in PCB and stayed away once you knew that everything was scooped up and tagged and taken away, etc. You just started to try and reformulate a plan down there yeah my plan at that time was i didn't plan on going to jail i was going to get enough money to together i was going to leave the country because i knew we were in deep shit you're telling me you had another borrowed plane and a plan to bolt from the u.s right well i didn't didn't leave lakeland here with a borrowed airplane i thought cross gave you a plane at some point Oh, we we checked one out one time. It was an old Aztec, but no, we didn't leave with his airplane. It it didn't work. Did Cross and Kathleen know 
that if you had been able to execute that plan, that you were never coming back? Did they know this? Yes, they knew it. Sure, they knew it. I had a plan to leave the country. Cross initially said he had a plan to leave the country, but he needed money. But he didn't come up with the plan to leave the money, to leave the country. The plan that I knew was, was in Leesburg, Florida. And it was a Panther Navajo with some people that Cross knew. But yeah, I plan to leave the country, but it takes money to leave the country. Here's the other question I'm asking you. You had a plan to leave the country and have no intention of coming back, and you were married to Kathleen, and she was completely fine with this? Yeah, she was fine with it because, you know, the handwriting was on the wall. There wasn't going to be any life. I mean, she could join me where I went, but there was not going to be any life with all the shit that had gone down. I mean, in my mind, there wasn't. If you don't do something, you're trapped. If you don't have money, you're trapped. If you stay in the country, you're screwed. Or you initially went to jail while in jail or just out of jail. Did you still know that Cross Sr. was the reason the feds found you to begin with? Yes or no? Yes, I knew it. Why or how did you believe sitting in North Georgia with Kathleen post-bail, did you believe that you could continue to make runs for Cross Sr. without making it worse or getting arrested again? Why did you believe that? Oh, I didn't believe that. I believed that I didn't have any choice but to do it. Like I said, I was, he had us by the balls. He owed us money. I didn't have any uh, way to make any living. And so if I needed to leave the country, I needed money. I mean, he was trapped. Didn't have any way out. Berlin, sounds like you took being between a rock and a hard place to new levels, my man. Damn. And with that, we bring the first Shadow of a Mercenary episode to a close. We sincerely hope you enjoyed it and will continue to listen throughout the entire story through to its terrific end. Please subscribe, share it with friends, and of course, on your social media. I'm your host, Kevin E. West, and we'll see you right back here for the next one.